It is a really special day today. How often do you have three people in the same room on a Sunday morning have birthdays? Mr. Bob Niwa, Laura Gleason, Tony Krebs, all in the same service. Happy birthday, all of you. It's my duty to embarrass you. No, it's a very special day because we get to be here to worship God together, and we get to sing praises to God, and we get to watch people profess their faith in Christ and be baptized. Uh, We get to open up God's Word, and I get to preach it. You get to hear the Word. And um, there's also something else that's really special today. Today marks the day when there's only three Sundays left in Matthew's Gospel. After four and a half years, and I've loved every moment, um, the Lord willing, on December 8th, we will bring the plane in for a landing. All right? Okay, so let me ask you a question to start off with. In your mind, as you think about it, what is the most important thing about a person? What is the most important thing about a person in your mind? Now, most Christians are going to say, well, of course... If they know Jesus or not, are they a Christian? Are they trusting the finished work of Christ on the cross? Do they, do they believe in the Lord Jesus and are they being saved? That's probably what we're going to say is the most important thing about a person. A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about you is what you think of when you think of God. That's the most important thing about you. I would specify that and say what you think of when you think of Jesus Christ. But today we're going to explore that question as we see some curious contrasts surrounding the burial of Christ. We are talking about Christ's burial today. It's not usually a very exciting topic about you know, getting someone buried. They died, and now they're getting buried. But it was in the mind of God for the cross of Christ to be central to all there is about the Christian life. It was in the mind of God. That's why we, we put a cross up on the wall instead of a dove or a fish. It was in the mind of God for the cross to be central. Now, 36 hours after Jesus died, God raised him from the dead. We're talking about what happened after he died. And what happened during that time, that 36 hours, only God knows. But Matthew records two very different Actions, two very different courses of action surrounding the burial of Christ. It's a curious contrast between those who believe that Jesus is God and those who are calling him a fraud. So open up your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 27. And when you find that, I want to ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Now we do this for several reasons here at Grace. We stand up to read God's Word Because we want to remind ourselves that this is not the word of man. This is the word of God, which is perfect and strong and sure. And what the Holy Spirit uses to do his work in us who believe. We also see this pattern in Nehemiah where they opened up God's word and the people stood up out of honor and reverence for God. Now they also did some other things. They fell on their faces before God in worship, but we're only going to do the standing part today, okay? Alright, so Matthew chapter 27, I'll begin reading at verse 57 and go down to verse 66. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of, Christ, of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. 
And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the privilege of being here today. We thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that that you would, would open our hearts to receive your word, that we would hear it with willing hearts, that we would not resist what you have to say, but that you would have your way with us today. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So Jesus was put in a tomb. He was dead. Now I want to ask you a question. What does the tomb prove? What does the tomb that Christ was put in prove to us? What did it prove to the people that were living of that day? What the tomb of Christ proves is that Jesus really died. Some people will say, no, no, he was in a coma, he swooned, he was, he was unconscious for a while, but he, he was revived, he was resuscitated. What the tomb proves is that Jesus really died. He was dead. John Calvin said it this way, one reason for God wishing his son to be buried was to give better testimony that he had died a real death on our account. He died a real death on our account. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was given as a ransom for many. He was forsaken. And it was to save the world. It was prophesied that it was better for one man to die. His life was given as a what is called a propitiation and a, a sacrifice that was, was to appease the wrath of God. He was delivered over to death for our sin. We are justified, when we come to faith in Christ, we are justified by his blood. He condemned sin at the cross. He became a curse for us. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Christ died for sins. And the tomb proves that he really died. The Heidelberg Confession puts it this way. Question. Why was Christ buried? Answer, to confirm the fact that he was really dead. So let's get that point straight. He really died. That's why he was put into a tomb. Now what we're looking at today is a curious contrast between people who believed Jesus and people who did not. 
A curious contrast of characters in Joseph of Arimathea and the religious leaders of Christ's day. I want you to start with me at verse 57. We'll look at who they were and what they did. These two parties, these two groups in great contrast. Verse 57, when it was evening. Now that's an interesting phrase, when it was evening. It repeats what was said in chapter 26, verse 20. When it was evening, right before the Lord's Supper. And it reminds us of something. Those two phrases, when it was evening, marking right before the Lord's Supper, now right before Christ is being buried. It reminds us that what happened between those two phrases, what happened between those two events, happened in one 24-hour period. One day. It's like that old... TV show 24 where you will go through a whole season and it's like one day right or three or four seasons I don't know a lot a lot happened in one 24-hour period the Jewish custom of that day was that bodies would be taken down before evening especially with the Sabbath beginning at sundown six o'clock who is Joseph we don't know a lot about him He, he arrives on the scene and then he leaves as quick as he came in all four Gospels, he, he reports for duty at the burial of Christ. Then he slips back quietly into obscurity. Not mentioned again. I think there's something beautiful to be said about humble service to Christ. I think there's something beautiful to be said about humble service to Jesus. It's interesting that at his birth, there was Joseph, his earthly father, and now at his death, at his burial, there is Joseph of Arimathea. Here's two Josephs, and neither one is recorded in Scripture as saying a word. We know they could talk, but they were not recorded as saying anything in God's Word. Both speak by their faithful deeds. The reality of their faith is shown in their actions. So what do we see about Joseph? Joseph of Arimathea. What do we know about him? We know he's rich. He was a wealthy man. The biggest thing we know is that he was a disciple of Jesus. Verse 57, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who was also a disciple of Jesus. He was a wealthy disciple, fulfilled Isaiah 53.10. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Joseph was one of the most common names for a Jew. He was from Arimathea, which is about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Luke 23 tells us that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. But specifically, I want you to go to Luke 23. I want you to see what what Luke says about Joseph. He was a disciple of Christ. Luke 23, beginning at verse 50. Similar, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. So you know that Arimathea was a town of Jews. And he was a member of the council, the Sanhedrin. And then it says, a good and righteous man. A good and righteous man. Code word for believer in Jesus. He is significantly called a good and righteous man. He was a disciple of Christ. So we use words that are used to describe believers in Jesus. What else do we know about Joseph? We know that he believed God's word. As a disciple of Jesus, he believed God's word. Now, Stay with me or or go back to Luke 23. I want you to see what else it says. It says that he was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action and he was looking for the kingdom of God. He believed the word of God. He was immersed 
in the Old Testament scriptures as a member of the Sanhedrin and he was anticipating the reign of the promised Messiah. It says he looked for the kingdom of God. He had no part in the plan to condemn Christ because if he did, he would be going against the word of God. What else do we see about him? The third thing I want to point out about Joseph is that he was courageous. He was courageous. Go with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Again, a similar account. Begin at verse 42. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He took courage. Now, I want you to go to to John 19. Another account here. John 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. At that point, he had been afraid and had kept his discipleship to Jesus secret. Now he's, he's letting it all out. And it's at a very critical moment here's jesus he's died on the cross he needs to be buried here's a rich man who's got a tomb who believes in christ and so he becomes courageous he becomes courageous at the right moment you don't see any any of the the 12 coming out but the 11 now that were that were left coming up and doing something like this or even calling for it He was a disciple of Christ who believed God's word and he was courageous. He also was compassionate. Look at verse 58, Matthew 27, 58. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Verse 59, Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud. He goes to Pilate out of compassion for the body of Christ the dead body of Christ asks for the body the Sabbath is approaching Deuteronomy 21 says that a cursed person who's hanged on a tree should be buried the same day so as not to bring a a, a defilement upon the land but it says that he wrapped the body up the Jews didn't do cremation they didn't do embalming they didn't use coffins they would wrap the body in linen cloths you had contact with a corpse that equaled ritual impurity tombs were marked with whitewash to warn people to stay away corpses were left in tombs until they decayed one to three years but here he is compassionate he wraps the body of jesus this man whom he believed was compassionate you know compassion is not just an emotion you might say, well, you know, so-and-so, they're a really compassionate person. Or, wow, I cry at movies that make me sad. I feel so compassionate. Wow, they're so compassionate. Every time they see someone in need, they want to help them. Compassion is not just a feeling. Compassion is not just an emotion. It is something that is shown in action. If you're compassionate, it means that you are engaging in action to help other people in need. That's what Joseph did. He was compassionate. And one more thing I'll mention about Joseph. You see it in verse 60. It says that he laid him in his own tomb. He was generous. He was giving. He was selfless. Now, crucified bodies were usually at best given a, 
a very dishonorable burial in a public plot. But by burying Jesus in his own new tomb, Joseph of Arimathea was showing his devotion to Christ as his disciple. He laid the body in his own tomb. It was a man-made cave. Mark 15 tells us that. It would have been a rectangular underground chamber cut into rock. The dead would be put on benches or little burial slots cut into the sides of the tomb chambers. And large family tombs were expensive in those days. You, if you were a rich man, you could afford one of those. Sometimes with several chambers, you know, with, uh, connected by tunnels. It would be used for generations. I've got a picture of a tomb here, and a lot of times people will notice, will say, well, the big rock, the big boulder was rolled in front of the tomb. This would have been a cut stone, not a big boulder. About maybe five, six feet in circumference, six inches thick, and it was designed to roll on a track like a coin rolling on its side. They would close the tomb, not to protect the body from grave robbers, but to protect it from the wild beasts that would come and eat the body if it wasn't closed up. But he was a generous man. He gave his tomb. Verse 61 tells us that the Marys were there. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Prior to burial, out of respect and honor, the corpse was washed, watched over and washed. There was love and care. It was like they were reinforcements, additional supports. But what you can say about Joseph, if you had to boil down, what is it about Joseph? It's that he loved Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus. He was a sinner in need of a Savior. That's what you could say about, G- about Joseph. But now in contrast to Joseph, you've got the, the chief priests and the Pharisees who always tried to make life miserable for Jesus, and now provides the, the example of the Antichrist way of doing things. Who are these religious leaders? Well, there's a lot known about them. But what do they do here? In contrast to Joseph, who loved Jesus, they were well known for causing trouble all throughout Christ's ministry. I would say they're the religious bullies of their time. They opposed Jesus as often as they could. So while Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, they were enemies of Christ. They were enemies of Jesus. Verse 62 says, The next day, it's interesting, they go a long roundabout way of saying on the Sabbath. <laughs> the next day, that is, after the day of preparation. The day of preparation was the day before the Sabbath, when people made preparation for the Sabbath. But they come on the Sabbath and gather before Pilate. And they say to him, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, I'm going to rise after three days. It's interesting. It sounds like they're being really polite to Pilate, right? Sir, it's even worse. That's the Greek word kurios, for Lord, for master, for authority. They're calling him their master, their Lord, their authority. Idolatry knows no bounds. They were enemies of Christ. And they mocked God's word. Here's Joseph who believes God's word, who trusts in the resurrection as he's burying the body of Christ, and they are mocking God's word. They are opposed to God's word. They say, we, this imposter, when he was still alive, said, after three days, I will rise. They have masqueraded as defenders of the truth, and here they are against the truth. If you're against the truth, if you're mocking God's word, you are in line with the enemies of Christ, not friends of Christ. God's word is being mocked. Joseph was courageous, What we see here is that they were cowardly. 
You see, they wanted someone else to do their dirty work. They said, here, you go and make his tomb, order it to be secure until the third day. You do it. I can just see Pilate saying, hey, I've already washed my hands. I'm clean. I'm not going there. Uh, you know, he's believing his wife's dream to have nothing to do with this righteous man. He's like, I'm done with this. I'm not getting pulled back into this. They were cowardly. Well, Joseph was courageous. And while Joseph was compassionate, they were hateful. They were spiteful. They called Jesus here an imposter, literally a fraud, a deceiver. They're saying that he is engaged in deception. They were hateful. They're enemies of Christ. They mocked God's word. They, they were cowardly. They were hateful. And they were also greedy where Joseph was generous. They violated their own strict Sabbath laws to go and get what they wanted. They were as selfish as could be. So verse 66, we see that, verse 65, Pilate says, you have a guard, you go make it secure. I'm not dealing with this. And it says, verse 66, they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. They were greedy to make sure that the story about Jesus in their minds, didn't get warped. Here are the frauds perpetuating a great fraud. Sealed the tomb. That would be a cord attached to the stone and to the rock of the tomb with a, the, the wax imprinted with the Roman seal. You've got soldiers as security. I mean, we're locked down here. We are locked down. One of the early church fathers said, Behold, a seal, a stone, and a watch, and they were not able to hold him. Another writer says, Here was all power of earth and hell combined to keep Christ a prisoner. We know 2 Timothy 2.9. The word of God is not bound. They thought they could bind him. See, it's an interesting thing. The enemies of Jesus worked against their own wills for the truth. Their sin made the resurrection more sure. It was locked down tight. They couldn't say, you know, someone else, someone left the code unlocked, you know. They forgot the key. They didn't lock it up. Someone forgot to roll the little stone. No, it was, we've got this secure. Nothing can get past us except the power of God. The religious leaders were enemies of Christ. They mocked. They were cowardly, hateful, greedy. You know, hate for Jesus leads people to do many destructive things. But Joseph loved Jesus. Love for Jesus, on the other hand, leads you to do many good things for Jesus and the gospel. Go with me to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I say often that one of the best sounds in the world is the sound of Bible pages turning. And you got that cool Bible paper that makes the sound even more special? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So people who, who trust in Jesus have come to a conclusion, and they haven't come to it on their own. The Word of God has led them to this conclusion, and the conclusion is, 
Jesus died for me, therefore I'm not going to live for myself. What you see when you come to the Word of God is you, you have a, a crisis of the will. And not just for people who don't believe. Everybody has a crisis of the will when they come to the Word of God. When you read these words and you hear that, that Jesus died for me, therefore I shouldn't live for myself. Well, most people I know, most Christians I know, go back and forth between living for themselves and living for the Lord. It's like ebb and flow. Maybe moment by moment. Maybe day by day. Hour by hour. So well, there's a crisis of the will. And you've got to realize that love for Jesus will lead you to do many good things for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. Go with me to Mark chapter 8. You know, I, I don't like to always sign my emails with the, same, with the same thing before my name. And, you know, you go with in Christ, in Christ's love, and, you know, all the people come up with even fancier ones. I always like to come up with something that's like from the Bible. And in Mark 8, verse 34, here's what Jesus says. He called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Verse 35, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So I sign my emails a lot of times for Jesus and the gospel because of this verse. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will what? Save it. He says, what, what's it going to profit you if you gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can you give as a ransom for your own life? Jesus was the one who gave himself as a ransom for many. The only ransom that's going to work. Love for Jesus leads you to do many good things for Jesus and the gospel. Here was Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus who believed the word of God, who was courageous who was compassionate, who was generous. He loved Jesus, therefore he proclaims his faith through what he did. Every time I've read about Joseph of Arimathea, it seems like I have this thought, wow, poor Joseph, all alone, doing this all by himself, and the only one that would go do something for Jesus. And, and all his disciples, you know, had, had fled. They weren't, the, none of the 11 remaining disciples were there. Go with me to John 19. Go back to John chapter 19. I want you to see something there. Joseph wasn't alone. Verse 38. These, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Now look at verse 39. Nicodemus also. Now, if you hear the word Nicodemus, if, you, if you're familiar with the Bible, you're going to go, hey, wait, hold on, John chapter 3. The guy who came to Jesus by night, in fact, that's what John says, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, takes you right back to John chapter 3, where Jesus says, you know what, you got to be born again. And, and, and Nicodemus is like, hold on a second, <laughs> time out. Uh, how can you be born again and go back into your mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus says, no, it's not about a physical birth. It's about a spiritual birth. It's about coming, to, to, to coming alive spiritually. You were dead in your tra- transgressions and sins, as Ephesians 2 tells us, and God makes you alive in Christ. This is Nicodemus. So Nicodemus who had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Must have been a strong guy. 
He's going to help Joseph of Arimathea. So together, look at verse 40. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. You know, I like to say to people, you shouldn't minister alone. You know, if you minister alone, you start thinking, I'm the only one. You get the little Elijah complex. And you're like, oh, I'm the only one. I'm the martyr. Oh, I've been working so hard. And, and if you work together with someone, you get a more realistic view. Partner up with somebody. Serve the Lord together. You're not the only one. I want you to notice something. Go back to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, I want you to notice the six verbs the actions that, that Joseph took. First one is he took, he took the body of Jesus. He wrapped the body of Jesus. He laid the body of Jesus in the tomb, a, a tomb that he had cut out beforehand. And then he rolled the stone in front of the tomb and then he went away. He's doing many good things for Jesus in the gospel. Risky things. Here he had been a secret disciple beforehand and now he's out front in public asking for Jesus' body. Risking others' disapproval. You know how angry that would have made the Sanhedrin? If you love Jesus, you're going to be inspired to do many good things for Jesus in the gospel and those will be Risky things. Those will be, you will risk embarrassment, you will risk rejection, and you'll risk others' disapproval. You'll do crazy sounding things like getting baptized. Getting dunked in water in front of a bunch of people, that's kind of a weird thing to Christians and non Christians. You'll do wise things, you'll do God inspired things. You want to preach the gospel to yourself and to other people that you're around. You're going to want to be out there, up out front for Jesus and not stay secret. You're going to want to serve the Lord. And, and maybe you'll serve the Lord in such a, a quiet way that no one even notices. But you do it for Jesus and the gospel. Your effort will be powered by the Holy Spirit. It will be driven by the gospel. You'll be fueled by faith. If I had to boil, boil it down to one word about Joseph of Arimathea, you know what word I'd choose? Devoted. Was devoted to Christ. I think you could call him, if you want to have like a little motto for Joseph, the man who did one thing. One thing. He gave his tomb to Jesus. He gave his grave to Jesus. Jesus gave his life for him. He gives his grave to Christ. The man who did one thing. It's like the boy who did one thing in the Bible. Gives his loaves and fishes. There's people in the Bible that, that um, they're only known for doing one thing. Joseph shows up, reports for duty, does his one thing and then leaves and you don't hear about him anymore you hear about jesus who raised from the dead who's devoted and then you've got the women verse 61 the women who were there just i think that's another key word there they're just there they're faithful mary magdalene is there all the time in jesus's life in his ministry life he's she's there available What's the Christian life all about? If someone comes up to you and says, hey, what, what's the Christian life all about? Tell me about it. What are you going to say? Is it about knowing the word of God? Is it about being courageous? Is it about obeying God? Is it about showing compassion for those who are in need? 
Is it about being generous with what you have? Those are all good things, but they're not the most important thing. The Christian life is all about trusting in the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. It's all about trusting the finished work of Christ on your behalf and loving the Lord Jesus more than anything. You love the Lord Jesus more than life itself. You bring his word to bear on every situation of life and you will find what most people seek and few people find. Peace and clarity. You'll have the peace of God that, that goes beyond your understanding and you'll have, you will be clear about what course you are to take. You'll be engaged, not in duties. We like to talk about duties. Oh, I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I have to. You will be engaged not in duties, but in privileges. It's not have to's, it's get to. You will be engaged in good deeds based on the good news. That's what Joseph was about. Good news drove his good deeds. Good deeds based on good news. Because the gospel encourages godliness from a sense of gratitude to God for what he has done. John Stott points something out about the idea of gratitude. He says it's not by accident that in one Greek word, one and the same noun, charis, grace, that that one word does duty both for grace and gratitude. Look in Hebrews chapter 12, and it says, let us show gratitude, let us show charis, let us show grace, that we might, we might serve God with reverent awe. Go back to that first question I asked. What's the most important thing about a person? And if we say, the most important thing about you is what you think of when you think of God, what you think of Jesus, I would say, humanly speaking, I wouldn't disagree. Humanly speaking, I wouldn't disagree. But from God's perspective, I would. Because what matters most is not what you or I say. What matters most is what God says. What matters most about a person is God's perspective, God's assessment, basically what he says about you. The most important thing about you is what God says about you. So let's see what the Holy Spirit said about Joseph of Arimathea. Go back, Matthew 27, that first verse, 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is telling us that Joseph was a disciple, is a disciple of Jesus. What is most important about you is what God says about you. It's interesting. Discipleship is a miracle. Coming to faith in Christ is a miracle. Following Christ is a miracle. Here Matthew is explaining the miracle of discipleship by one Greek word. The Greek word for disciple is mathetes. This is mathetuate. And it literally means he had been discipled to Jesus. That Joseph had been discipled to Jesus. The verb discipled is in the aorist tense, which describes a moment of time. And then it is also passive, describing an action of God. An action of God in the moment of time that made him a disciple. Because discipleship, following Christ, loving Jesus, is first a gift from God before it is a decision you make. I mean, 
most people don't have to be told that their sin is extremely horrible. We do need to be reminded, though, that God's love is extremely wonderful and that Christ's salvation is extremely amazing and that it's based upon the love of God for you. I was driving back from L.A. just the other day and I saw a truck on the freeway and it, it just said, Jesus loves you. So, you know, I started texting it to all my friends right away. The most important thing about you is your identity as a disciple of Christ. The question is, are you? Are you one of those? Can it be said of you, you know, Joe, a a disciple of Jesus? Anne, a disciple of Jesus? Timothy, a disciple of Jesus? Melody, a disciple of Jesus? Can it be said of you that you are a disciple of Christ based on the love of Jesus for you? One last verse, and then we'll close. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. I love this verse. Here, here's how it goes. This is to believers. So if you're not a believer, this would be, could be true of you if you come to faith in Christ, okay? It says this. By his doing, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. He is the source of your life in Christ. I love that. Don't you love that? By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. He is the source of your life in Christ. So because of him, because of his love for you, you will be inspired to do many good things for Jesus and the gospel. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are the inspirer of all good things. And Lord, if there is any good thing in us, it's because you put it there. And thank you, Lord, for your life. Thank you, Lord, that you are our life. I pray, Lord, that, that we would be obedient to your, to your encouragement to us, to your commands to us, to your inspiration to us to do many good things for your sake and the Gospels. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.